welcome to the Quacks Podcast. I am Lucas. I'm here with Brian. Hello. How's it going, Brian? It's going well. How are you? Good, man. I feel like it's been a while. Like it has we, been a while. We missed a week there, and then you uh, you had some... I don't know how much you want to share about that, but... Just some heart a, stuff. Some heart stuff? Some heart stuff. Got a wonky valve, as it turns out, and just... Really? Yeah. So <laughs> you just what? made the face like, ooh. What does that everything? mean? Yeah, what does wonky uh, valve well, mean? Well, essentially, I have a lazy valve, or it could have been something that's been, I've had it since inception. Um, and essentially what it is, is it's almost the form of like a murmur where backwash is getting back into the ventricles of the heart. Instead of pumping all the way out, a little bit of extra blood is still coming back into the heart. So it's not pushing it all the way out. Some of it is actually coming back, which if they can't strengthen some ways, you know, eventually you would need a valve replacement. Okay. Gotcha. And is this something you've like had forever or I've, is this new information to you? I mean, this part is new. I mean, uh, like 20 years ago, I did get my heart checked out for something and somebody said, well, you might have a little bit of a a deal with one of, but then I, there was never any follow up and I, and I never really thought too much about it, but then I was having some issues and um which were not comfortable or fun and scary in dealing with your heart because apparently you need that so so i went and get got it checked and lo and behold i do have a bit of a valve issue which can either be rectified through um, pharmacological um, agents or strengthening in other ways if not you know eventually i would need a, a valve replacement because it can lead to stroke or heart attack, which I don't want either one of. Yeah, man, that sounds serious. Well, that's not that. I mean, it's common. But, oh, really? I mean, oh. valve issues are common. Um, but a, a man of my age, you know, I, I had some wear and tear on my heart in the early years. And um, if even if I did have a pre-existing condition, it didn't help it. Yeah, so, yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll just move forward and take it every day at a time and, you know. Okay. Are you taking heart supplements at all or are you just kind of? I'm taking a little. I'm taking CoQ10 with ubiquinol, um, but that's pretty much it. Um, I'm going to start taking some Hawthorne too. I'm taking CBD. I'm taking things to release, relieve my stress a little bit. Yeah. But uh, no specific heart other than the CoQ10 ubiquinol. Okay. Do you have something you could recommend? Yeah, I mean, we could we could talk a lot about heart stuff. It's really it's really interesting. I mean, Broda Barnes back in the I think seventies and eighties used to treat people with heart problems with thyroid. Um, that was always really interesting. So there's there's a lot of interesting like ways you can approach it. Um, but yeah, yeah, uh, there's definitely different ways to tackle it. The the generic like avoid cholesterol advice has been pretty. Um, pretty roundly disproven so you can't eat eggs you know you no problem i could yes you could um i uh i eat pretty well but i i do find that there are certain things that affect my heart differently hmm. um and it's just a matter of finding that out and that's by just you know trial and error keeping a journal and making sure that i'm just attentive to everything that's going on because, like I said, it's an important part of the body, the heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It so is. I'd like to keep it rolling as long as I can. Yeah. But, uh, I hear you. Yeah. No immediate danger, 
but uh, it's definitely something to keep an eye on. All right, good, man. We want to keep you around. I for, like it. I want to keep doing the podcast. For the 200th episode, you know? <laughs> you got to be here. <laughs> yeah, I have my grandkids here for it. Um, That's yes, right. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you. Little quackslings. <laughs> so today, uh, I have a little bit about weight loss, but I think before we jump into that, you had an interesting story from Healthy Habits. So I think we should do that first. Sure. And then we'll jump into weight loss, which is a ginormous subject. Right. Yeah. So we're we're kind of jumping all over the place today because we talked about heart and now I'm going to talk a little bit about it. This is something that, that a lot of all, all women at some point will deal with menopause mm-hmm. um, if you get to that point. And uh, this is perimenopause, perimenopause, which is the precursor to menopause. And some of the things going on with maca which is pretty interesting, and um, obviously it comes down to hormonal hormonal balance when you're dealing with such things, hot and, flashes. And maca, we've talked. Have we have we covered that yet? Have I we don't know. Into maca? I don't we know might if we have touched have. on it. I don't think we have really. Yeah. So for those who don't know, maca is a root. It's a it's from Peru. It's grown at very high elevations, right. and people take it for a lot of different reasons. But uh, hormones is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Especially um, getting older, and unfortunately, women do have to deal with that uh, change of life, as as it were. Um, Peruvian women are very chill, really, <laughs> because of the maca. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, uh, yeah, Peruvian women in their 50s are doing quite well. But uh, maca is being used for hormone, hormonal balance, like you were saying. Um, but this woman um, in particular was having a really rough time um, early, you know, perimenopause and was having hardcore hot flashes to the point where she couldn't really go do anything because she said she had to virtually disrobe. Um, She was so hot that she would like take everything off. So in the workplace, it makes it difficult. In Safeway, it makes it difficult. I appreciate it, but it does make it difficult for the average (laughs) consumer. It's tough in Arizona. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hot flash on top of 115 degree weather in the summer. But so she was dealing with a lot of those issues and having forgetfulness and um, cold as well. So she'd go back and forth. So it was really tough to judge where she was going to be, but she was having a super rough time to the point where it was driving her to mental exhaustion. And there were some pharmacological agents that were recommended by her doctor, um, but she had heard and done some research on maca. So she actually was telling me how much it's turned her around, and she's got a whole group of women now that have come to this church of maca. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're going to be in, in uh, a church of maca, these women are doing it right. So um, she she brought the sermon to me. And uh, can I say a particular product or should I avoid yeah, that? Yeah, I think it's all avoid. right. Okay, well, it's Feminescence. Okay, I know uh, that By brand. Symphony. And um, this is the one that she was really swearing by. And I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting because I take a varietal of maca for men um, from that same company. But I had never thought of it. In, in those terms and obviously I'm not in menopause yet <laughs> manopause <laughs> manopause yes an often debated subject of whether it's valid or not right um, but uh, yeah so she reversed those symptoms or eradicated them um, she said pretty much in two days of taking this particular product the feminescence. That's pretty cool. Um, and she was so overwhelmed with it that she started writing about it and doing little blogs and that sort of thing because she obviously wanted other people to benefit from something that 
all women go through. So she's got growing numbers of people that she's getting out there, the word to maka, 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 and it's been hugely beneficial, and I love seeing that. So it's really nice. Yeah, that is great. When when somebody responds really well to something, it's it's kind of rare it is. for that to happen. You know, you, you often don't have the story of, oh my gosh, I took this and my life changed. But when it does happen, that's great. Right. And it's not just her. She's got a whole group of people that, that swear by this stuff. And they don't have as maybe as severe symptoms of, of menopause as she has. But um, everyone's getting some relief to the point where she's this huge advocate for maca and particular this product so it's yeah. it's been really cool and that's nice it's a natural product you know she didn't do the uh estrogen creams and the progesterone creams so that's cool yeah it's nice she got to the root of it <laughs> yeah i see, you, see what she did there if, if you i see will. what she did there <laughs> <laughs> all right cool cool well uh so i want to talk about weight gain and body body fat you looked right at me when you said that. That is painful. I put on about 10. <laughs> well, it is it is a massive subject. You know, I mean, I think it might be the biggest, one of the biggest industries in the quote unquote natural world or whatnot. Um, and so to really dive into it, I think we might need a few parts. Okay. Um, I haven't written the other parts yet, but I thought we could first kind of lay the groundwork uh, for an understanding of what it means when your body stores fat. And I'm going to start with something called uh, set point theory, which is a pretty good explanation of how our bodies deal with like fat gain, hunger, metabolism. And most of the concepts I'm going to talk about and be discussing, they really grossly oversimplify what our bodies are actually doing. Okay. So I'm not going to jump into hormone signaling or ghrelin or HGH or anything like that. I, for one, appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> My aim here is really just to kind of give you a conceptual understanding uh, that will aid in decision-making around food. Okay. You know? And also, there's other theories out there, too. Uh, this There's other explanations of weight gain. So this don't take this as definitive. Um, I found this explanation very useful in my life in directing my fo focus. And so I, I think it can be useful for a lot of other people. The goal is really to get you to a weight where you are content and which is easily sustainable. Uh, that's the huge thing. So you're not fighting your body to try and lose weight. And I'm really directing this towards people who are kind of unhappy with their weight loss results. And maybe they've tried a lot of diets, you know, they haven't had much luck. If you're like cutting fat for a physique competition, this is probably not for you. <laughs> <laughs> and similarly, there are people who, you know, they gain 15 pounds in the winter, lose it in the summer. They're, they're fine. And so really this is for people who have gone down that weight loss rabbit hole and not gotten the results they wanted. And so it's like a way of looking at it that's different. I would imagine majority of the people have, that are listening have struggled with their um, struggled with weight at some point in their life, but yeah, some people just they lose it really easily. You know, some people are like, "Oh, you know, I gained 20 pounds and then so I just went on a little diet and it's gone now and I'm fine." Jerks. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I knew this girl in college, she got really big. And I see her Facebook pictures now and she looks great and she's looked great for the last like 10 years. And so it's like, there's some people who they just, they do a diet, they lose some weight and it works for them, but that is not the vast majority of people. So, right. 
Anyway, all right, so set point theory. Uh, what this says is that everybody's body has a basic range of, of fatness and leanness. Those are the technical terms uh, that <laughs> it will attempt to keep you at. So this means as you dip below your set point, your body will attempt to defend that range by adapting in a way that will make you gain weight. And as you get above your set point, it's going to raise your metabolism to try and get you back into the range. Now, long-term, this theory works actually pretty well at explaining like many people's experience. Uh, as you lose weight, it becomes harder and harder to lose weight, and it gets easier to gain that weight back. Crazy. But, uh, by the way, that, that's called like your metabolism adapting to being below your set point. However, the theory kind of breaks down on the upper end. So, as most people, they have no problem gaining weight. You know, their hunger increases, they eat more, they gain weight, their hunger increases even more. So it breaks down a little bit on the upper end. However, there is literature that says metabolic increases as calories increase. So there is some truth to it, even if maybe people's experiences don't match up there. Okay. Now, I think the main reason why there's this kind of non-linearity uh, on the upper end and the lower end, there there are reasons and, and I'll get into it. So a lot goes into what your body's set point is. So genetics, epigenetics, womb environment, childhood trauma, uh, long-term, what you eat. Womb it, environment? Yes, yes. I, I'll, I will show you. <laughs> I know. It sounds crazy. So a big part of research is trying to find out how to lower your set point. And other than like certain brain injuries, there really hasn't been much found. In contrast, raising your set point, meaning your body is comfortable at a higher weight, um, it's actually quite simple. And one of the ways to do it is starvation or starvation of your family. So this is this is really interesting. If your mother lived through a famine, there's evidence that her children have slower metabolisms to make up for the fact that food might be scarce. Wow. Yeah, so in other words, there are epigenetic changes in offspring that come from the fetus or whatever estimating how much food is available. And if there's little food, the offspring's body will they'll pack on more fat and slow their metabolism down to account for the lack of food in the environment. And that's encoded in the DNA? Is that how that works? Well, it's called an epigenetic change. Okay. And so it means your body's turning on and off different genes and that kind of thing in response to the environment. Okay. And so there's actually evidence for this that has occurred. So in the late 1950s and early 1960s, China went through like this terrible famine. Um, well, I say went through, it was caused, but anyway, went through this <laughs> terrible famine and what researchers found is that in the two subsequent generations of the people who survived the famine, uh, people had a higher incidence of hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes, which means that they had a lower metabolism and they gained weight easier. Wow. Um, now, this is just an observational study, so it's not you know totally causal, but it, it lends some evidence. And, and I've actually seen other studies in like rats and mice and stuff that famine can affect up to six generations down the line. That's incredible. Yeah. So your weight set point could be influenced by your great, 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 great grandparents living through a famine. Eating a potato a week. And now look at me. Thanks. <laughs> I eat an Oreo. And I put on 20 pounds. <laughs> right. So the question is, why is it so easy to raise your set point and so difficult to lower it? And as best I can tell, the answer is your body is very conservative and it's willing to sacrifice the long term for the short term. So if stress is occurring, the stress hormones they're going to kind of pack the fat on you just in case they that you need it. It's conservative. So you got to think of weight gain from 
the perspective of your body. And this is like the mental shift. You're, you're not thinking about weight gain, like how you look, you know, and how, how you think it makes you look worse or whatever. Um, but your body, it actually thinks weight gain is a good thing to your body. Extra fat is kind of like safety. <laughs> um, if you just live through a famine, those extra pounds, they're going to be like this sweet exhale of relaxation <laughs> as your body's like, ah, no more starvation. It's starvation insurance. That's right. And not only that, the process of losing fat is also stressful. Most people don't understand this. And I, I've even seen doctors who don't get this actually. So common knowledge says losing weight is healthy, but this is not true. <clears throat> the fat burning state is an unhealthy state. So I, I know a lot of people who are like, keto followers are like what are you talking about just just go with me on this we'll cover keto whatever some other day but so like if you have sepsis you will drop a lot of weight qu quickly and if you drop weight quickly for any reason it is not a good thing like there's something that has gone wrong in your body the fat burning state is not a healthy state so people get confused in that being skinny is healthy versus being overweight but getting skinny is not healthy so there's a subtle difference here. When you lose weight, you put stress on your liver and kidneys. And in fact, one cause of uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is losing weight too fast. So your body, it generally doesn't want to lose weight. It it's it has all these reasons that it wants to keep fat on. Right. Um, fat is a nice dumping ground for the body. So it can put fat-soluble toxins in there that it doesn't want to deal with. Uh, fat keeps you warmer so your metabolism doesn't have to work as hard to kind of keep your body temperature up in all respects fat is like this safety valve so any stress toxin exposure bad food you name it if it's bad your body will do better handling it with more fat that is so odd it is odd and because people think oh i'm going to lose weight and i'm going to get healthier but it, do it doesn't work like that being thin is healthier than being fat. Right. But getting thin is not necessarily So that's healthier. why the gradual process is the preferred method of losing weight rather than just shock and awe. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. The gr the more gradual you can do it, the better. Um, and we'll, we'll actually talk about this. So this, this whole thing has given rise to something. It's called the obesity paradox, which it's not causal, but um, it's observational. And so there are those who are higher in weight and they tend to do better when going through extreme health events than those who have lower weight. So in other words, if you are overweight and you have a heart attack, you will tend to have a higher survival rate than those who are skinnier and have a heart attack. Mm. Now people who are overweight tend to have more heart attacks. So I'm not saying that being overweight means you're going to have less heart attacks. What this is saying is that, you know, if I had like a magic wand that caused heart attacks, it's a terrible That's magic a wand. Bad wand. You know, and I could cause a heart attack in you. Being overweight would tend to increase your survival rate. Hmm. And so what this is kind of pointing to is that fat is something your body uses and likes given what the environment is. So how does this all kind of tie together? What I'm attempting to do is really to kind of make the case for how our bodies view weight loss. And I actually personally think you can lower your set point, um, but it's kind of like building trust. It, it probably takes a long time. And the problem is there's this mechanical view of kind of calories in, calories out. And I want to move towards a holistic view that incorporates like your entire lifestyle and history as influencing your weight set point. Hmm. See, if you go into the doctor and you're overweight they're going to rule out like some extreme metabolic diseases, but then they're just going to tell you to have diet and exercise. And if you can't do it, you have a willpower problem. 
It's it's a really nice cop out. <laughs> but if you view fat and you think about it as like past trauma or a body that is in crisis, you know, using fat to buffer itself from what went wrong, it you you can address the actual problems that will address the weight. And so that's what I want to do. I want to have, you know, your your focus be like when you see gaining weight, when you see fatness, don't think like willpower problem or too many calories or whatever. It's like there is there's a there's a crisis there. There's a trauma there. There's a, a lack of understanding of of some truthful truthful thing. So interesting. Yeah. Well, doing this research for this show, I, I kind of delved a bit into like men and women who compete as bodybuilders and other <clears throat> physique type things. And these people they gain and lose weight all the time. Like they're always going up and down. They're constantly like bulking up and gaining muscle and then they cut down for competitions and they usually have, you know, very good metabolisms. It will, at least at first. And they have, <laughs> they, they have a lot of good advice, like on weight loss, how they do it. Um, obviously they're more concerned with like performance and appearance than, than living a healthy life, um, which is something to remember, but I, but they think that they're living a healthy life because they're lifting weights and doing all these things, but they're not taking into account. <laughs> what they have to do to achieve that state. Yeah, they they do end up I mean I I don't know this for sure, but I've talked to a lot of ex bodybuilders and they a lot of them have digestive issues and lots of stuff that goes goes wrong, but you know, they're that's their job in a lot of cases. That's how they're making their money completely. So, I mean, it's in some ways understandable. So, anyway, I picked up uh some tips from this guy Dr. Eric Trexler who he was also a bodybuilding athlete as well as a doctor. So, these are his his trip, his tips about losing weight. Tip number one, uh, cortisol really hurts weight loss. And sometimes doing less exercise and gym work can help weight come off faster as the water retention from cortisol goes down. Cortisol is that hormone you get. This is stress hormone. It's your body puts it out when you uh, need more energy than you have available. Uh, the next tip, slower rates of weight loss tend to favor hormone levels. So you lose less lean muscle and you don't run into those adaptations that prevent weight loss. Uh, the slower you go, the more sustainable the weight loss is. For physique athletes who are cutting fat rapidly, recovery of their metabolism can take four to six months after a competition. And for women who lose their period, it can take sometimes a year or more before they are fully recovered. <sighs> Why would you do that to yourself? It's kind of crazy. Uh, there are a lot of anecdotes from athletes that uh, getting down to a very low body fat is somehow remembered by your body and your body won't allow you to lose fat like that again. So there's not much evidence of that scientifically, but it is reported by many people that if they lose too much weight and they get too much of a low body fat percentage, uh, their body won't let them get back there again. Just cuts them off. Yeah. Uh, metabolic damage caused by dieting can persist until you regain the lean tissue that you lost. And lastly, reverse dieting can coax you out of metabolic adaptation to dieting and restriction. So reverse dieting is kind of this popular thing right now. It's where you slowly increase your calories over weeks and months. And some people claim that this kind of raises your set point or your metabolism, which isn't true. I listened to some doctors about it. That probably isn't <laughs> the case, but it's a great way to kind of recover from dieting induced metabolic adaptation. Um, it's not going to change the metabolism you were born with, but it, it might be a useful tool. But it makes sense. Maybe wade back into the caloric waters, if you will, instead of just jumping in cannonball style and then just gradually building up. I mean, that totally. makes scientific 
sense. Checks yeah. out. Yeah, it totally does. Now, the amazing thing about these phys- physique athletes is that they are constantly dealing with unfavorable adaptations to weight loss. So uh, they're super focused on how to avoid damaging their metabolism, and yet it can still take months or even years to get out of like an intense weight loss experience. So now can you imagine basically what signals you're going to give your, what you're giving your body when you restrict calories to lose weight, you know, from your body's point of view, you could be starving, you know, it, it can't tell when there's like real starvation occurring versus like, you just want to drop 15 pounds before some family photos, (laughs) you know, to it, things are bad and maybe they could get worse. So like push, push the brakes on the metabolism, you know, store fat for survival. And this is why dieting has an abysmal failure rate. I I read this article about from psychology today that summed up the research, something like 95% of people who lose weight through restricting calories end up gaining it back in one to five years. So 95%, terrible, terrible. That's why people keep dieting and dieting and dieting. It it doesn't actually work. And, And not only that, those who diet, they're eight times more likely to develop an eating disorder. So what we want to do is we want to tell, yeah, it's kind of crazy. We want to tell our bodies that everything is okay, that there's no need to hold on to fat, that in fact, it may be not a great idea to hold on to fat right now. You know, I think of fat a little bit, it's kind of like safety from my body's point of view. Fat is like the little bubble that it uses to protect itself from everything. So the way to lose fat long-term is to get the message to our bodies that we are in fact safe, that we don't need fat. Right. See, if you get into restrictive dieting, instead of this other method and you're below your set point, you're going to be constantly battling your body. And I can assure you in a battle with your body, you're going to lose either way. (laughs) (laughs) Your body all day long. So like your body's going to be sending like hunger pangs at you all day and night, trying to get you back to where it thinks you're safe. Um, You're going to have to constantly be vigilant to eat less than what you want to eat. And if somehow, you know, in some drunken moment you overeat, you mess up, it's going to be 10 times harder (sighs) to get back to where you were. And this is, this is what I saw all the time. Mostly women who are trying to lose weight, they cut, they keep cutting calories to stay weight stable. And eventually they're eating something like 1200 calories a day and they're still the same weight. And I saw this all the time. People would come in, you know, when I worked at a health food store, they'd lose weight. Then they'd cut, you know, they'd be great for a while. They'd gain it back. They'd try a different diet and it's just, it's just a little yo-yo. That's incredible. Yeah. So there's another interesting tidbit of info I came from that came from this study and there's like a well-established connection between obesity and trauma. So in this study, 286 obese people, they found that half of those people were sexually abused as children. Like if I were just to take a random sample of people, you know, outside and see how many of them were sexually abused, you'd get like a way lower abuse rate. So it really is about safety. That's inc- in some that's in crazy some respect that you it, can even link it to that it's kind of nuts so yeah because it's i mean like they said it's comfort eating and if you're a lifelong comfort eater you're gonna have the spoils for well, it and think about it it's like they have this trauma it's in their head it's telling them you're not safe you're not safe you're not safe and part of what that may go to is pack on the pound so that if bad things happen we'll have some a buffer Okay, yeah. You know, so the current of medical understanding, it really doesn't account for this. The doctors, they really treat weight gain as like a behavioral or lifestyle disorder. You can actually ask them this, what what type of disorder is obesity? 
and you know assuming there's like no other metabolic reasons like cushing diseases or something like that and most doctors they'll tell you exercise and eat a good diet if you gain weight and just the sheer failure um of these approaches it just makes advice mind-boggling so anyway that's that blows me away that's the foundation i want to lay and on top of that there will be weight loss tips and so i'll i'll give you know just to not let people hanging i want to i want to give one kind of broad tip now but there's going to be others yeah um i like the scientific precursor though to to what you're going to yeah. deliver to us well, if you have the correct understanding it will actually lead it will point you in the right direction towards long and remember what we wanted was long-term weight loss we want long-term easy non-fighting weight loss that's what we're going i'm for. all about it all right so f- weight loss tip don't have cravings that you have go unanswered and feed cravings with natural foods so you know that you're getting specific nutrients that your body is craving and so the thing behind this is that our body is wise you know if we're not feeding it all kinds of random signals so if you're eating fast foods and junk from like the snack aisle you're getting dosed with flavors that are they're going to mess up your natural hunger and craving cues so getting away from these it gives you the freedom to give into cravings later so like for example say you eat a pretty plain tasting diet meaning like rice potatoes vegetables meat whatever you know no no msg or any crazy good tasting things (laughs) (laughs) i mean like extremely good tasting (laughs) if you have a craving for ice cream you know getting a low ingredient ice cream without you know all the fillers and gum and crap that's totally okay because we're assuming that your body needs something in the ice cream that is good for it. However, if we are eating McDonald's and other food that are designed to ignite that addictive place in our brains, then we really can't trust our desire for ice cream. For all we know, it's like some dopamine craving neuron firing <laughs> for all it's worth. And the, cra- the ice cream itself is giving our body just, it's just extra calories. It's not, not good for you at all. So basically... Eat plain food for the most part so that when you crave something flavorful, you can trust that your body really needs it. And it's not an addictive craving. And what this does is it builds trust. And trust means safety. Okay. All right. So food, just to kind of give you a little background on that, Food Today, it's a product. And it's designed to be sold in markets with choices. And what that means is back in the day, you kind of pretty much had to eat the food that was around your village or whatever, you know, food didn't travel that far like it does today. So today billions of dollars of research goes into the research and marketing to find out the best taste for us. And, you know, next time you take a bite out of a Dorito or something, you just remember like that flavor was focus grouped and tinkered with until they got the exact right blend of spicy and sweet and salty and you know, whatever else. The only way you're going to choose a certain food with a certain flavor in a market full of different options is if that option gives your brain the exact correct combination of flavors that you're craving. The problem is all these highly processed foods, they're just lies. They're just full of lies. (laughs) (laughs) They might hit the right spot like on your palate, but when your body goes to pull the nutrients out of those foods, it's just going to find chemicals and tricks that make it taste good (laughs) completely so part of like losing weight and getting healthy is getting on a path to truth with regards to food 
And the path to truth means avoiding foods you know taste good in favor of foods that taste like what they are. So like a pear tastes like a pear. A piece of homemade sourdough bread tastes like homemade sourdough bread. But a Cheeto, a, a Cheeto tastes like, like a perfectly aged piece of cheese, lightly dusted on a perfectly moist, airy, well-baked pastry, <laughs> which it is not. That is not what no. a Cheeto is. So step one of yes. this tip is to stop eating lies. <laughs> I love that. So how do you do this, right? You want to pick foods with the least amount of ingredients possible. So buying everything and cooking it from scratch is obviously the best way to go, but you know, we can't do that all the time. If you do pick up packaged foods, you want to, you know, and you see a wall of ingredients, you want to put that right back on the shelf before you even look at the ingredients. If, if you see a bunch of it, you don't have to be super restrictive either about what you're going to eat. Like I, I buy graham crackers when we go camping and I buy these gluten-free ones that are very simple. It's like rice flour, eggs, butter, honey, salt, maybe an anti-caking agent or something, but it doesn't mean graham crackers are good for you, but at least I'm not tricking my brain about what it's eating. You know, I'm feeding my brain the correct information. Even if that information is not good, it's like, it's the correct, it's it's truthful. It's the truth. Yes. And therefore when I get cravings later on, I can trust those cravings as coming from a true place. Just like you have friends who you want to tell you the truth, you want the food to tell you the truth too. So if you're craving Cheetos. Make a perfectly made uh, croissant with a nice light <laughs> dusting of cheese on top and eat that puppy because that's what you that's what your body's telling you it wants. Oh, not okay. This makes sense. Yeah. Does it, does it make sense? It does to me, yeah. Okay. Instead of eating the replicated form of something, the fake version, the lie, eat the truth. Find the truth behind your craving, what it is you're actually craving. Ask yourself what you're craving. Take a moment to think about it. Me, I'm jamming it in my face before I can stop myself because I know I'm doing the wrong thing. Hmm. Um, So, no, it makes perfect sense to me. Okay, cool. Yeah. And and then it's going to be, I'm just going to give some other tips on other ways to over time lower your set point it has you know it has to do with things like getting sunlight and not staring at a computer screen too long and that kind of thing so yeah no that yeah. makes great sense okay cool yeah we'll talk i more love about this it. topic because i've struggled with my weight you know throughout my life you look pretty good yeah i'm 10 pounds heavier than i was though this time last year okay you look normal though well, I, I appreciate that i did get the you look too thin last summer a little bit and okay i loved it <laughs> So it's, I was like, more, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that aside, no, it's definitely something that I think a lot of people deal with. So this is great. Very topical. Too many people. Thank you very much. Yep. Cool. All right. Uh, you can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. I always name off different directories because we're on them all. It seems um, like there's a new one every week too. I don't, I'm not even familiar with Stitcher. Sounds great. Yeah, it's okay. I don't. I don't think too many people go to that anymore. Anyway, <laughs> if you have any questions, uh, send us an email: quackspodcast at gmail dot com. And uh, anything else? No, this has been great. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Be well. Be well.